Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of John, Chapter 3. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome for our study of the Gospel of John, Chapter 3. Now, last week, we saw this bride and this groom at the wedding feast of Cana. We learned about a spiritual marriage and the consummation of a spiritual marriage that happened here at the foot of the cross. A bride... A church was conceived here in the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and 3,000 new children were born that day. Peter and the apostles baptized 3,000 fulfilled Jews that day. A new daughter, Zion, was married at the cross, conceived and gave birth to numerous new children of God. Behold, I make all things new again. That's what he promised in Revelation 21. And from this spiritual marriage, and Mary's yes, 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 be it done unto me according to your word. This marriage has been very, very fruitful, producing many new children of God over the years. Then we saw this bridegroom, same bridegroom, with much zeal for his father's house, so much that it consumed him because he knew who he was. He knew his deepest, truest identity. He was the true presence of God. And they couldn't believe his audacity, which means a boldness or daring, especially with confident disregard for personal safety. The Jews said to him, then what sign, what sign can you show us? Why are you doing this? What sign can you do? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, well, this temple has been here for 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days, three days, really. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And later, when he's raised from the dead and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples will remember what he said. They'll remember and they will believe. And they will believe the scripture and the word, the word, had spoken. Now, how do we as Catholics study scripture? Because Catholics study scripture different than other groups. Catholics study scripture canonically, and that means every single book of the canon points to the same word, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Father's final word. We look at the whole entire canon, and we have senses of scripture. According to ancient tradition, two senses of scripture, the literal and the spiritual. And then the spiritual sense gets divided into three more types, allegorical, moral, and anagogical. And we have to look at all four senses of scripture, especially when we're studying John, because he's that eagle that soars. He's full of theology and high Christology, and we need to know allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses of scripture to really understand John. So I just want to review that very briefly. Two senses of scripture, literal and spiritual. Spiritual gets divided into three other categories, allegorical, moral, and anagogical. Let's just take one concept, like the temple, and go through these. Because in John, you really need to be able to pick these out. The literal sense of temple, it's literally what it says it is. It's a temple. It's the temple. Literally, it's the literal sense. Let's look at temple in the spiritual sense. 
The first spiritual sense is allegorical, and that means that it's going to foreshadow future people or events, especially Jesus. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again, he is foreshadowing himself as the temple. He's using an allegory. This is an allegorical sense of scripture. He's foreshadowing himself. He's going to die. He's going to raise in three days. What about the moral spiritual sense of scripture? St. Paul uses the moral sense a lot. And it's a spiritual sense. It's an example of virtue or morality that can be learned. So if we look at the word temple, Paul says, if Christ lives in you, you are a temple. That's a temple in the moral sense. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your temple. That's a moral sense of the word temple. And then the third one is the anagogical. And that considers the relationship to eternity. And so we have to look even higher. It's a spiritual sense of something that relates to eternity. So we're gonna, we're heading, we're all heading for a new Jerusalem and a new temple and a new Holy of Holies, which is the actual seat of the living God that Ezekiel saw, that Isaiah saw, that John saw in the book of Revelation. So it's really important to know all these senses of scripture, at least try to figure them out, keep them all in mind, especially as we study John. He's very mystical and very spiritual. Tonight we're looking at Nick at Night, John chapter 3. Nicodemus. It is a Greek name, Nicodemus. John is the only one in the entire Bible that tells us about this man, Nicodemus. And John's going to tell us about him three different times in three different chapters. And Nicodemus is going to be good, better, and best. He keeps getting better. In chapter 3 tonight, he's good. He's a seeker. In chapter 7, he's even better. He's a defender of Jesus. And in chapter 19, he's the best because he's a believer. And so he's progressing in the spiritual journey. And that's good for us to remember. Good, better, best. It's not a stagnant one-and-done deal. Our road to Christ, our process to conversion. Nicodemus shows us also that we can't separate heart and intellect. He is a very learned, a very smart, intellectual man. But his heart can't stay out of it with Jesus. He also shows us that faith and reason really, 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 really do go together. They are two wings of the same bird, and they lift the bird and make it fly. Faith and reason must not be separated. So the spiritual journey that each of us are on in here, this is a process, and it is a series of ongoing conversions throughout life. That's what we believe. It's not a one and done. Also, we're going to see tonight John's theme of light and darkness. This is huge in John. So tonight, when he's a seeker, he's going to come in dark pitch black, dark of night. In chapter 7, when he's a defender, he's going to come at night, but it's going to be during the Feast of Tabernacles when there's endless day because the temple is illuminated all night long. In the final chapter, he's going to bring a hundred pounds of myrrh for burial. This is extravagant. He is a believer now, and he will soon know the fullness of light, the brightness of light of the resurrection. So John takes us through the progressions of light and darkness with this character, Nicodemus. Today, he's a seeker like us. He's seeking truth. This is a Greek name. Nicodemus, Nico, Nike, is victor. 
So his name means a victor of the people or a conqueror of the people, Nicodemus. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He's a leader of the Jews. That's a big deal. He's one of their leaders. We'll see in John 7 that they're trying to figure out who this guy is. And some say, this, this is really the prophet. Others say, well, this is the Messiah. And some say, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd of Jews because of Jesus. And some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the temple police... Did you know that there were temple police? The temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you arrest him? And the police answered, well, never has anyone spoken like this. And the Pharisees replied, well, surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Have any one of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Any one of the authorities, any one of the leaders of the Jews, have any one of them shown any faith in him? Well, remember who comes tonight in the dark of night. The crowd, which does not know the law, they're accursed. But Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before, who was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, he asked, our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing first, does it? He was one of them. Nicodemus was one of the Jewish leaders. He is one of the Sanhedrin council. That's a big deal. Surely, they replied, surely you Nicodemus, are you from Galilee? Because search, and you'll see Nicodemus said, no prophet ever arose from Galilee. You are a learned teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus. Okay, what's it mean that he belonged to the Sanhedrin? You'll hear that a lot in the scriptures. The Sanhedrin is the ancient Jewish court system, and we call it the Sanhedrin. And the Talmud tells us that there are two classes of rabbinical courts, a great Sanhedrin and lesser Sanhedrins. Each town in Israel could have its own Sanhedrin, the lesser Sanhedrin with 23 judges, but there could only be one great Sanhedrin, and that was in Jerusalem, and that had 71 men ruling on it, and it's like our Supreme Court, and they would take appeals from cases decided by other lower courts, and they could be heard before the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The court was part of the temple, It was located within the chamber of hewn stone inside Herod's temple, and 71 men resided. Jesus Christ, we know, was tried before the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Rome was ruling at the time, and Rome had renamed the southern kingdom of Judah to Judea, a Roman province. And Judea no longer had the legal authority to execute their own law. And so all death penalties had to be done under Roman authority. So Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin first. Then he stood before the Roman government, Pontius Pilate, the prefect. Nicodemus would have been one of those great men on the great Sanhedrin. And they were not elected, these members. Their position was not permanent because any scholar at any time could gain a place on the legislature by providing a greater level of scholarship in Jewish law than a current member of the legislature. So you could challenge them to a duel of the law. Intellect was highly valued and extremely esteemed by the Jews. So Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel? Are you a leader of the Jews, yet you don't understand these things? Ha! Nicodemus! That's Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. 
I challenge you to a duel of the intellect. I could take your chair on the Great Sanhedrin Council. Any scholar at any time could prove a greater level of scholarship in Jewish law and take that person's seat. I might just have to challenge you to your seat on the Great Sanhedrin Council. Jesus not only knows the law, but he is the complete fulfillment of the law. He doesn't come to abolish any of it. He fulfills the law. He knows the law like the back of his hand. He is the law. Jesus can totally debate law with this victor of the people, Nicodemus. And I think he likes it. I know he likes it. He will enjoy their mental gymnastics. He enjoys the seeker coming to him in the dark of night. And he enjoys his questions. And he enjoys our questions when we ask questions of him. When he was a 12-year-old kid, he was a child prodigy. And he took on these Pharisees for the first time in the temple, remember? And they were astonished. Who's, who's Rabbi? Who's this kid sitting under? He is amazing. He knows all the answers. He knows the law like the back of his hand. At age 30, he completely demoralized the devil himself in three easy moves. You want to quote my father's word to me? Well, I am the word, and I'll quote it right back. You're saying half truths. I'll tell you full truths. Checkmate. Done. <laughs> Jesus would meet anyone at any time on any ground they chose, and he was delighted, no doubt, to go head to head with Nicodemus. Let's go. Now, the great Sanhedrin council, there was a president of the council, there was a chancellor, and then there were 69 general members. 71 meant there could never be a tie. The president would always have the last vote. Decisions were made by majority vote with that last person, the president, getting the tiebreaker. And the president of the Sanhedrin council from 30 to 50 AD was Rabban, great master Gamaliel the elder. Do you know who he is? Yes, you do, because when we studied Acts of the Apostles, He's Paul's teacher. He taught St. Paul. He was a Pharisee in the council. He was named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. He was respected by all people. He stood up. He ordered the men be put outside for a short time because they have to settle a dispute. Someone arrived and announced, look at the men who you put in prison. It's Peter and John. You put them in prison. They're standing in the temple. They're teaching the temple. This is after Jesus had died. The captain went with the temple police. They brought him without violence. They were afraid they were going to get stoned by the people. And when they brought them before the Sanhedrin council, the high priest questioned them. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, this name of Jesus. But you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, we are. We'd love the blood of Jesus to cover you and forgive you of all your sins. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, who you hung on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all people, stood up and ordered the men be put out for a short time. And then he said to the Sanhedrin, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. Because some time ago, the dust rose claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him and he was killed. And all those who followed him were dispersed and they disappeared. And then remember after him, remember Judas the Galilean? 
And he rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him, and he perished, and all those who followed him are scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them go, because if this is their plan, or if this is the undertaking of human origin, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you might even be found fighting against God. And they were convinced by Gamaliel, the Sanhedrin was, and they called in the apostles and they had them flogged. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. Now, Gamaliel stood president over that council from 30 to 50 AD at the time of Jesus. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any because there wasn't any. So what do they do? The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin are looking for false evidence so they can put him to death. And they did the same thing to Stephen. They seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses again who said, this guy, he never stopped speaking about the holy place and against the law. For we heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change all the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they took him outside and they stoned him to death. And his face was like that of an angel as he looked up and saw the heavens open and Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. And Stephen's body was left to be eaten by wild animals. Now, church tradition maintains that Gamaliel embraced the Christian faith. And according to Photus the Greek, Gamaliel was baptized by St. Peter and St. John together with his son, Abibus, and guess who else? Nicodemus. Wow, and St. John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, made reference to this ancient tradition that Gamaliel converted to Catholicism even before St. Paul did, his student. And the Clementine literature, another outside source, maintains that Gamaliel maintained secrecy about his conversion, and he continued to be a member of the Sanhedrin with hopes that he would convert fellow members of the Sanhedrin to Catholicism. Now, the Jews slew St. Stephen by stoning him and left his body for the dogs. The martyr's body lay in an open place at the foothill of the city of Jerusalem for one night and two days. The second night, Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, and secretly a disciple of Jesus Christ, came and moved the body to Carphagamala on his estate in the country, 20 miles from Jerusalem, and he honorably buried Stephen's body there in a grave. And you can go there today. It's 20 miles outside Jerusalem. And there are monks, Seleucian monks, that stay and maintain that original grave of St. Peter. Gamaliel also buried Nicodemus. It is said that Nicodemus died weeping over the grave of Stephen. And Gamaliel, he was also buried there along with his baptized son, Abibus. And so... Many centuries passed without anyone knowing about this place and anyone knowing this was the grave of these men until 415 AD when the body of St. Stephen the Martyr was found. And how was it found? He's stoned to death and Saul is standing there overseeing the stoning. And in 415 AD, Gamaliel appeared three times to one of those monks, those Seleucid monks, in a dream. And it was Gamaliel, and he told this priest that Stephen's body should be taken to a worthy place to be buried. And the priest asked the stranger in the dream, who are you? And he said, I am Gamaliel, who instructed the Apostle Paul in the law. And he told the priest where exactly he could find the relics of St. Stephen. And in the dream, Gamaliel revealed that he had taken Stephen's body, laid it in his own tomb, 
after it had been exposed. And Gamaliel mentioned that Nicodemus is also buried in the same spot. I received Nicodemus into my house in the country, he said. I maintained him there until the end of his life, and after his death, I buried him honorably near Stephen. And Gamaliel informed the priest that he and his 20-year-old son were also buried there. So Father Lucian, after three times of having this dream, takes the message to the Bishop of Jerusalem, John at the time, and said, I've had three dreams. He says he's Gamaliel. He tells me where the bones of Stephen are. So the Bishop of Jerusalem orders that this grave be opened and these bodies exhumed. And at the rumor, the crowd goes to watch, and they see four bodies, Stephen, Nicodemus, Gamaliel, and Ababas, his son. And the crowd comes out to see, and many who were sick and weak with all sorts of ailments go away perfectly cured. Stephen's body is translated to Zion in Jerusalem. It's put in Mary's Church of Dormition. And then it's translated from Jerusalem to Rome. So it's there today. St. Stephen the deacon is laid to rest next to St. Lawrence, the deacon of Rome. And the pilgrims for centuries have been coming to venerate the bodies of St. Stephen the martyr and St. Lawrence the deacon, two deacons, both martyrs. And you can go there today to St. Lawrence outside the walls in Rome and in the confessio under the altar, you will be able to venerate the bones of both of these saints. It's amazing. And here are their remains in this church. And then in the narthex to the west, paintings of the whole scene of how they found these bodies, the body of St. Stephen and Nicodemus and Gamaliel and his son. So Nicodemus, in the end, is a believer, and he is a victor over the people. Tonight he came by night to Jesus. Why does he visit in the dark of night, Nick at night? Because he wants to preserve his identity. He doesn't want anyone to know who he is, especially anyone on this great Sanhedrin council. Identity has been a big theme for John so far. He doesn't want his identity known. He wants to keep it hidden for now. But he has questions. He is a seeker, and he's seeking. And what does it mean to be seeking? To go in search or quest of truth, and to search by questioning. If you have questions, that's awesome. If your kids have questions, that's awesome. When we stop questioning, that's a problem. Nicodemus was seeking. We're seeking. We're seeking the same thing. We're both seeking Jesus. We're both seeking truth. Matthew tells us, seek and you will find Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. So am I. Nicodemus was a teacher too. I know you're a teacher who has come from God. No one, no one can do the signs you've been doing apart from the presence of God. Well, we had just seen in the last chapter, Jesus calls himself the true presence of God when he calls himself the temple. Nicodemus is on to something. One title of Christ is Jesus the teacher. I'm not the teacher. He's the teacher. He's the true teacher. This is his word. These are his lessons. Nicodemus was also a teacher, so they have an affection for one another. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Do you want to see the kingdom of God? Do you want to see it one day? I know some of you have family members there already. You want to go? No one can see it without being born from above. What's it mean to be born from above? We got to know. Nicodemus had to know. Nicodemus said, well, how can anyone be born after growing old? Can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I don't get it. 
can, can I go back inside my mom and come out again? I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus said again a second time for increased emphasis. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Oh, another clue, water and spirit. Whenever he says truly, truly, or your translation might read verily, verily, perk up. It's important. He's going to say it many times in John. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can be born, enter the kingdom of God without being born again of water and spirit. What is this? What does it mean? How do we do this? He goes on to say, what is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. So what does it mean to be born from above? Flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. This is going to take a little mental gymnastics <laughs> for Nicodemus and for us. So how I can feel I can best explain it is that we were partakers in the divine nature when we lived in the garden, when we lived with the Trinity, when we could talk to the Father, when, when the tree of life was right there, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was the river of life right there. But when we fell from grace, and it was a huge fall because then we couldn't participate in God's divine nature as much anymore. We couldn't freely walk in the garden. We couldn't talk to him whenever we wanted. We couldn't drink from the river of life. We couldn't eat from the tree of life. And we got separated from his divine nature in its fullness. And we were supposed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. But we ate from the tree of knowledge of good, okay, and evil. We wanted to know evil. And he allowed us to because we have free will and he let us know evil. So now we know evil. And guess what? God does not participate in evil ever. So now we're separated from him because we wanted to know evil. So we got separated from his divine nature. And that's that hole in our heart. Now we live by the flesh. And flesh gives birth to flesh. They gave birth to Cain, who was a murderer. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Then one day in the fullness of time, flesh, Mary, was overshadowed by spirit. And the fruit of her womb is flesh from her, but spirit from God, from above. So what's in her womb is dual-natured, fully spirit and fully flesh, fully God and fully man. And he had told them right after the fall in his great mercy, I'm going to put enmity between you and the virgin woman and between your offspring, which is spermatos in Greek, and hers. He will strike your heel and you will strike his head. It's the first gospel. It's the first good news because I'm sending someone who's going to crush evil through a virgin woman. This promised offspring is human egg and Holy Spirit overshadowing. And Nicodemus knows the Jews are Abraham's human fleshly ancestors. And this offspring's supposed to come from their line. And Abraham's the father, the great, 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 great father of our faith. And Nicodemus knows him inside and out. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter three, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.